From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Daryl West of the Brookings Institute joins me to discuss his latest book, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era. And after that, TV critic Con Vanderwerf joins me to share his thoughts on the much-anticipated eighth and final season premiere of Game of Thrones. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. It is no secret that America is divided politically and culturally. It is a war between the have and the have-nots, between the rural and cultural elites, between the Hatfields and the McCoys. But is it a misnomer to suggest such divisions began with the presidency of Donald Trump? My guest, Daryl West, examines this phenomenon in his new book, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era. West is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute located in Washington, D.C. Daryl West, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. Nice to be with you. you know, we've had uh, Harvard professor Steve uh, Levinsky and uh, Daniel Zablat uh, speaking about their book, How Democracies Die. We recently had uh, Brown University professor Corey Brettschneider talking about his book, The Oath of Office. Now, both texts were written by serious scholars about the looming threat they see vis-a-vis America's democratic guardrails. And I see you offering something similar in the macro context, but in the micro, I see your text is one part political science and one part personal observation. Could could you expand on that? Yes, uh, thank you for that. Uh, My book is a family memoir about political polarization in America. So it looks at the 40-year history from Reagan to uh, Trump and how we got to this point. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in rural Ohio, so grew up in a very conservative area, so lived among a con- the a conservative uh, tribe. But then I taught political science for 26 years at Brown University, which is a very liberal campus. And then my immediate family mirrors those types of uh, divisions as well, because my two sisters stayed in the rural community where I grew up. They married local farmers. They're Christian fundamentalists, and they love Donald Trump. Uh, and then my uh, brother and I are more uh, liberal, are more liberal, and are not uh, big fans of uh, President uh, Trump. So family reunions always are interesting. But in the book, I basically combine the family angle with this national political story about polarization, how America became so divided, and what we can do about it. Hmm. Now, the, the title of your book, "Divided Politics, Divided Nation: Hyperconflict in the Trump Era," but you offer that this division began well before the emergence of Donald Trump. Exactly. I mean, Trump certainly has made the conflict worse, and I do talk about that in the book and just the divisions that's introduced into my own family. But certainly the conflict has been building over at least 40 years. Uh, uh, Going back to Ronald Reagan, I remember at the time he seemed like a polarizing uh, figure and Uh, You know, my family were big supporters of Reagan. I remember my father in particular uh, loved Reagan's emphasis on uh, deregulation. Uh, As a dairy farmer, he had regular run-ins with milk inspectors who would uh, come to inspect his 
Jerry operation. But then my students at Brown University hated Reagan, were protesting against him, and you know thought that he was evil. And of course, now with the benefit of hindsight, Reagan doesn't seem uh, that bad. I mean, he actually supported immigration reform that included the pathway to citizenship. He raised taxes in order to uh, balance the budget. So he did many things that would not be acceptable to uh, many Republicans in today's climate. You also cite religion uh, along with uh, along with those different perspectives uh, of America that sort of undergirds this the, the vision that that your part of your overall analysis. I do believe uh, religion is a big part of our current divide, and this certainly divides many urban areas, which tend to be more secular in religious orientation, from the rural area where I grew up and the small towns that uh, populate America, where a lot of people are deeply religious, uh, cultural values are very important to them. And I know I've stayed in touch with uh, many of my high school friends, and I'm surprised. I mean, I can uh, you know, connect with them over Facebook so, so I can see you know, what they're reading, what they're commenting on, how they're reacting to uh, differing things. And I'm really surprised how many of them today are Christian fundamentalists. They're Trump supporters. They just feel like the country has gone in the wrong uh, direction. And you know, rural America has been devastated economically, and many of my friends who did not seem particularly religious uh, when we were growing up, in fact, if anything, I was actually a lot more religious uh, than they were, uh, but they now have become very religious, and this is part of the us-versus-them mentality that has become very prevalent in America, and it really divides the country, especially between uh, uh, rural areas and urban areas. I, I mean, I'm a masculine speaker, but how, if you look at it, based on analysis in your book, how many states are we? We're the, we're the coast, we're the heartlands, are we the south? Are we like four states? How do you, how do you see that those sort of divides playing out? Well, certainly when you look at economics, much of America's economic activity now centers on the East Coast, the West Coast, and then a few metropolitan areas in between. I have some uh, colleagues at Brookings in our uh, metro program that did that analysis. They found that today only about 15% of American counties generate 64% of our GDP. So, you know, it's basically the East Coast, the West Coast, and then uh, some of those uh, urban areas uh, in the heartland. But much of the country is not sharing in the economic prosperity. There are no jobs. There's no economic future. There's no hope. Uh, the children are having to leave the small towns to uh, go to the cities. And so this division between the heartland and the coast is a big part of our political polarization because many of those people who live in those heartland areas that are being uh, left behind did become Trump supporters, and they continue to uh, support him. They're part of uh, that base, and then many people on the coast hate Trump and just feel like he's destroying America, uh, moving the country absolutely in the wrong direction. He's uh, mean-spirited and uh, divisive, so the, the geographic divide is, is real and reflects some of these differences, both in economic prosperity, but also in the cultural values that people hold in those respective areas. I'm going to go back um, to your family, um, if I may. I want to begin with your brother. Now, you, your brother is gay. He came out. Talk about how that reality plays itself out um, 
in your family with respect to religion? That certainly has been an interesting issue in the sense that the four kids, my three siblings and myself, actually get along really well at a personal level. Like, you know, we're still in touch. Uh, I go back to Ohio uh, where I grew up at least uh, once a year. We exchange Christmas gifts and uh, birthday uh, cards. So on the surface, all of us get along uh, very well. But my two sisters uh, are very religious, and my brother being gay, although they love my brother, uh, their religious values lead them to not really uh, believe uh, that uh, being gay is consistent with their religious uh, values. So it kind of shows how religion can intrude into family life and uh, create some divisions. And, you know, you see those divisions playing out all across America, just because uh, as the countries become more secular, uh, the coasts have certainly become uh, more liberal, and so people are more liberal on social policies and on uh, cultural values. Uh, but in the hinterland uh, and in the heartland, where religion is playing a very important role, uh, some of the new lifestyles create challenges for people. Uh, they see America moving in a direction different from where they think uh, it should uh, go. Uh, and then when Trump talks about harkening back to the 1950s and 1960s, when he says America was uh, really uh, great, they embrace that uh, because it's consistent with how they see America as currently going wrong, and it makes them very nostalgic for a past where they think the United States was a better country. Now, you, you've talked with your sisters. Um, why did they vote for Trump, and do they still support him today? Uh, they did vote for him, and they still support him. Uh, one of my sisters, I asked that very uh, question of what she liked about Trump, and she had this line, uh, something uh, along the uh, lines of that Trump thinks outside the box. And by that, what she meant was the status quo has not been kind to many people in the Midwest, especially the big industrial states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, you know, some of the very states that uh, made uh, Trump uh, president. Economically, those states are being uh, left behind. Uh, uh, the people have been devastated just by the structural changes in the economy, the decline of agriculture, the loss of manufacturing uh, jobs. There are new jobs being created through technology, but oftentimes these are part-time jobs with no social benefits, no health care, no retirement uh, plans uh, built into them. And so what my sister and other people I've talked to in the Midwest like about Trump is He's basically willing to break the eggs in order to create a different kind of omelet because the reality, the status quo has not worked well for many of those people. And so they want somebody who is going to be unconventional, who thinks outside the box, who challenges conventional wisdom, who envisions new types of policies. Like many of the things that Trump says and does that enrage those of us who live on the East Coast or the West Coast they actually like because they like the fact that he's a disruptor, that he thinks differently, that he's challenging the status quo because for them, the status quo has not worked out very well. So they want somebody who's going to bring fundamental change. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Daryl West of the Brookings Institute and author of Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era. If you look at the president's economic policy, specifically um, his tax cut legislation, trade negotiations, 
tariffs, are any providing a direct benefit to many of the people in the heartlands that still are loyal to the president? Probably not. Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, when I look at Trump's uh, policies, like in the 2016 campaign, he told a very powerful story about people being left behind, not sharing in the economic prosperity, how the system is rigged against them. And if if he had actually followed up on that, I think a lot more people would be open to his presidency. But as your question suggests, a lot of his policies actually seem to be moving the country in a even in a worse direction in the sense of his tax policies conferred most of the benefits on the wealthy and on the corporations. Uh, the people I grew up in the Midwest probably got a small tax cut, uh, but it didn't meaningfully improve their uh, lives, didn't improve uh, their ability to get a good education, didn't help restore the American dream uh, for them. But yet they are still supporting President Trump now two years uh, into his uh, presidency. And I think in some respects, they like Trump's cultural values, and they love his Supreme Court appointments, and they love that Trump is putting uh, pro-life people on the court, because that very much conforms to their values. I think they, at some level, understand that economically, they're actually no better off now than they were a couple years ago, but they think Trump's heart is in the right place, that if he has enough time, he can redirect America, and eventually some prosperity will come to them. So I think that seems to be how I interpret their behavior in still supporting him, even though his economic policies haven't done a lot to improve their well-being. Now, before anyone thinks this is just a a one-sided issue, a one-sided conversation that defines themselves philosophically, as liberal also participate in this uh, divisive behavior, and I'm thinking specifically about your time uh, at Brown University. You, I mean, you, you saw the other side of that as well. I did, uh, and I taught at Brown for 26 years. Loved my time there. You know, I had a really good experience. But Brown is a very liberal uh, place. I mean, uh, uh, surveys of the undergraduates there have found that 70 percent of the students identify either as Democrat. Uh, members of the Green Party or something even to the left of that. Uh, sometimes at Brown, I would actually joke that the political divide there was not between Republicans and Democrats, but between Democrats and socialists. It's not that the socialists were that numerous, but they were a loud and noisy presence on campus. You know, sometimes we would bring Republican uh, speakers to uh, campus, you know, just to present kind of a range of political views uh, to the students. Uh, Many of these conservative speakers were shouted down. There were student protests. Uh, Students didn't like uh, the views that those individuals represented. And so, you know, today we now see that progressives are coming to the forefront. The National Democratic Party is kind of having this battle between conventional Democrats and uh, and the mainstream Democrats and the more progressive uh, people who were elected in 2018 and progressive people in the grassroots who want the party to move well to uh, the left and you know, Bernie Sanders is doing well in the early uh, days of the 2020 uh, campaign. He's raising a lot of money. And so the political divide that I saw between at, at Brown that was very much in a more liberal direction, but with some differences between Democrats and people well to the left of the uh, Democratic Party, we now see playing out uh, nationally. And the one thing people have to be aware of is 
there could be liberal intolerance as well as conservative intolerance. So certainly in the rural community where I grew up, there was a lot of intolerance to uh, people who were different from the people who lived in those communities or who had uh, different values. But I think in really liberal communities, there can also be a liberal intolerance of conservative viewpoints, uh, and I saw that many times at Brown University. Do you see that, um, and I'm thinking right now about some of the new members of Congress on the Democratic side that this seem a bit more strident just at first, at least at first glance. Do you see them as a reflection of um, President Trump's overall influence on our public discourse? I do. And certainly when I look at the 40-year political history from Reagan to Trump, it seems like each president kind of makes it possible for the opposite kind of president to succeed him. So, you know, after Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush, we got Bill Clinton, who's very different from uh, Reagan and Bush. After Clinton, we got George W. Bush, who was uh, kind of a reaction uh, to Clinton. After Bush, we got Obama, who is very different from George W. Bush. And I think it's no accident we got Donald Trump after the election of the first African-American president because people were looking for something very different from uh, Barack Obama. And if that theory holds, that suggests that Donald Trump may actually enable the election of perhaps the most progressive president in American history just as a reaction against him. Because with each president, the pendulum seems to be swinging wider and wider, and Trump is certainly extreme enough in a conservative and ultra-nationalist direction to now make the American people be looking for the non-Trump or the anti-Trump, someone who is just very different. And so there are a number of progressive candidates who are uh, running, uh, and basically, you know, we'll see if Trump does end up electing a progressive Democrat. Now, you talked a minute ago about um, liberal intolerance and conservative intolerance, and I think one of the unfortunate aspects that the coast as well as the heartland share is income inequality. Um, there are very few people in, say, San Francisco, where I used to live, a high-wage city, um, who work in the service industries that actually live in San Francisco. Many of them are 40, 50 an hour each way commute just, just to get in for the these service industries. And, and, and I don't know how sustainable that is. I'm sure Boston is similar. D.C. is becoming that way. Um, how do we get beyond our stereotypes and divisiveness to see this income inequality that's affecting everyone in myriad ways? I think you're right. I mean, income inequality is a big part of our current uh, political divide. And, you know, there are just so many people in many different parts of the country who are being left behind. Uh, certainly in the Midwest, that is true. But even on the coast, people being priced out of their own local markets. And, you know, as you point out in San Francisco, and, and we do see that on uh, East Coast uh, cities as well. Like people just cannot afford to uh, live uh, where uh, they are uh, living, and so we do have to get a handle on uh, income inequality. It's interesting when I listen to the 2020 presidential campaign and some of the Democrats who already have announced. In some ways, they actually are appropriating Donald Trump's 2016 critique of people are being left behind. You're not sharing in the prosperity. Uh, the system is rigged against you, 
but then what these Democrats are doing is then proposing liberal remedies to deal with that uh, type of uh, problem and that type of inequality. So we hear Democrats talking about a wealth tax, Medicare for all, uh, free uh, college uh, education. So I think people are now starting to uh, realize that income inequality is a big problem. People on both the left and the right see that there are many Americans who are being left behind. But the 2020 election is going to feature very different remedies on how to deal with our current economic problem. And so it'll be an interesting campaign just from the standpoint of there are going to be a wide range of both liberal and conservative remedies on the table to deal with these problems, and we'll see how the American public responds to those ideas. Would it be fair, sir, to suggest that um, of the myriad things you cite in the text that, that create this divisiveness are the ingredients for a stew that I'm calling tribalism? Absolutely. I mean, in the book, I talk about the economic, the cultural, and the geographic forces that are leading to these divisions in America. But I think what's unusual about the contemporary period is all of these cleavages now have metastasized into one big cleavage that's basically us versus them, you know, the liberal tribe and the conservative tribe. And the two tribes, even if they share a similar discontent with the status quo, they have very different villains. So conservatives see the villain as big government, and, and so therefore, you know, they like Trump's emphasis on tax cuts and deregulation as a way to deal with that particular villain. Uh, liberals have a very different villain. For them, uh, the villain is high-income inequality, uh, billionaires, uh, wealthy corporations uh, that are not uh, paying uh, uh, their share of taxes. And then, of course, they have very different remedies to uh, deal with uh, that particular uh, villain, which basically involves trying to create more economic opportunity, having fair uh, tax uh, policies, and uh, somehow trying to restore the American uh, dream. So I think we're, we are at a very interesting uh, point in American history where there's just a lot of changes uh, changes generated by structural changes in the economy, the rise of technology, uh, the possible impact on the workforce that's coming out of uh, these uh, various uh, changes. All of this is now playing out uh, politically, kind of contributing to our political uh, divisions. And people, even if they share a similar discontent, they don't have the same remedies that they think can address those problems. Mm. And so that then you know, creates even more divisions because people are arguing over how we solve these problems. Are, are we, sir, in your view, dangerously close to um, reaching that d division such that, let's say, if you and I are on opposite ends, that I just become more content by the fact that you're being hurt than my receiving a remedy? Are we dangerously close to that phenomenon? I think we are dangerously close to the divisions producing fractures that make it difficult to put things uh, back together. And you can see it in terms of the news media, because the news media are very uh, polarized. So the view of America that you get if you're watching Fox News is very different from the view that you might get if you're reading the New York Times, the Washington Post, or watching uh, MSNBC. Uh, uh, social media also are creating the same types of echo chambers.
chambers where technology makes it possible for like-minded people to basically come together. So, you know, wherever you are on the political spectrum or on lifestyle issues or on cultural values, it's easy to surround yourself with people who basically echo your perspective and reinforce your uh, particular uh, point of view. And then in terms of geography, people are just sorting themselves into gated communities and, uh, and, and, and kind of surrounding themselves with people who believe exactly uh, the way they do uh, or live the same type of uh, lifestyle uh, that they uh, live. There's an interesting survey that suggested 50% of Republicans today say they would be upset if one of their children ended up marrying a Democrat. And 33% of Democrats say they would be upset if one of their children ended up marrying a Republican. So these divisions are no longer just about politics, although that's obviously a big part of, of what's going on. But the polarization is now filtering into social relationships as well as even family relationships. And so it suggests how fundamental the tribalism has become and how dangerous it is to the American fabric. Don't we also have to acknowledge that that what the United States is going through right now is, in some respects, a worldwide phenomenon? I'm thinking of countries as diverse as Brazil and, of course, Brexit, Italy, are, that are among these examples that offer um, diversity of this phenomenon. But there are others. And so this is part of a, a worldwide phenomenon. I think that is exactly right. This is not just a U.S. story, uh, that it is a global story. As you point out, we're seeing it in a lot of different uh, countries in uh, Europe, uh, Poland, Hungary, and now Italy have moved in an ultra-nationalist uh, direction. So they basically have their Trump equivalents. Uh, Brazil certainly falls uh, into uh, that category as well. And what that tells me is that there are structural changes taking place in the economy. There are major changes that are starting to emerge just in geopolitics in general, in foreign policy, international trade, uh, international uh, relations. So it's not just an American story. These trends are much bigger. And what that means is, like even if Trump happens to leave office after the 2020 election, these underlying tensions that have been generated by these structural changes are still going to be there. Trumpism may actually live well after uh, Trump himself, uh, in the sense that the economic anxiety that people are experiencing uh, now, uh, based on either income inequality or technology innovation or people's fears about uh, how well they're going to do in the current uh, situation, that extends to many different uh, countries. And so it's not going to be easy to resolve uh, those uh, issues uh, just because they are so fundamental in nature. When you take uh, your experience as a political scientist as well as being part of a family um, divided at least on political perspectives, what are some of the keys um, for each side in, in a larger sense needs to hear from the other? I mean, I think in order to reduce polarization, we really have to address the root causes. And from my standpoint, the root causes are we need to improve economic opportunity in America. We need to restore the American dream. We need to address the geographic disparities uh, that I uh, talk about in the book. Like, 
I just don't think we can have as big of an economic divide between the coasts and the heartland. Uh, that's just not healthy, and that leads to resentment and people looking for scapegoats and kind of a lot of the divisiveness uh, that we uh, see uh, today. Uh, we need to restore people's confidence in the system, because I know today people are very cynical about American politics and American society in general. Uh, many people believe the system is rigged against them, and Trump certainly talked a lot about that in 2016, and he's exactly right on that. You know, for many working people, the system is uh, rigged against them, and it's hard to get a good education, it's hard to get health care, it's hard to uh, buy the uh, first home. So we really need to address all of those issues if we have any hope of reducing the polarization and actually addressing the issues that, that lead to these types of divisions. The title of the book, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyper-Conflict in the Trump Era. Uh, Daryl West, thank you, sir, for joining us today on The Public Morality. That was Daryl West. Stay tuned as I discuss the season premiere of Game of Thrones with TV critic Todd Vanderwerf on The Public Morality. Welcome back. Whether or not you are a fan, it was difficult to not know that HBO's Game of Thrones would soon premiere for its eighth and final season. Who will ultimately sit on the Iron Throne? What is the fate of Daenerys Targaryen and Jon Snow? And who knows what Cersei Lannister has up her sleeve? To help us unpack episode one of season eight, we welcome to the public rally, critic at large at Vox, Todd Vanderwerf. Todd Vanderwerf, welcome to The Public Morality. It's great to be here. Now, for those who feel they have been inundated with information about Game of Thrones but have never seen it, explain why this show is such a cultural phenomenon. Well, it's a show that I actually went and looked at its ratings yesterday and was surprised that in the first season, like, Quite a few people watched, but it was not a huge mega hit. It actually, for a time there, ranked behind the HBO show Boardwalk Empire, which launched a few months earlier, and you probably don't think about that often, whereas Game of Thrones became this massive cultural-dominating monolith. I think what it is is that it was a show that felt like it could do anything for a good long while. It would kill off characters. It would have these gigantic... Uh, these gigantic battle scenes. It had spectacle. It had visual effects on par with film. It really was a show that people felt like they were going to just be able to see anything happen that given week. And I think it's sort of, as it's gone along, has stopped being that. But it still has this gigantic scale, unlike anything else on television, and really, you know, unlike a lot of things in movies. The only real, the only real competition for its cultural omnipresence right now is probably the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is a vaguely similar thing in a lot of ways. Now, now, and now, uh, for those of us who have been waiting for roughly two years, um, did the season eight premiere, in your estimation, uh, meet expectations? Uh 
I was not a huge fan of the season premiere. I thought it was fine. Like I'm not I'm not going to say it was a bad episode of television, but it definitely it felt like it ran in place a little bit. I have kind of soured a bit on the series as a whole, so I should preface it with that. Like I thought season 5 was a bit of a mess, season 6 was pretty good, season 7 was even more of a mess. So season eight is really going to determine for me if this back half of the series has been worth it. Uh, and I thought that this premiere, again, was fine, but it was a little too weighted around stuff that I guess I just have disengaged from the characters enough that seeing them reunite while I was like, yeah, that's interesting. I, I never got emotionally involved, I think, in the way I was supposed to. Now, you also wrote uh, for Vox that you thought that the books written by George R.R. R. Martin um, were a loser. Explain what you meant by that. Oh, uh, well, the thing that I think is sort of interesting is that George R. R. Martin, when you see him interviewed, he talks a lot about when he read Tolkien and he read The Lord of the Rings and it ends with, and Aragorn, Ray, uh, Aragorn reigned wisely and well, ruled wisely and well, something like that. And it doesn't really talk about, you know, George R. R. Martin is obsessed with, it doesn't talk about his tax policies. It doesn't talk about, you know, how he treated the orcs. It doesn't talk about like how he diffused all these other tensions. It's just, we're supposed to believe he was a good king. So George R. R. Martin is interested in what makes somebody a good ruler. Game of Thrones, the TV series, used to really be interested in that. It's the predominant theme of the first four seasons of the show. It's just that in these last few episodes, like in, in these last few seasons, I should say, it's really become about... You know, we got to face off against the White Walkers, which I think is, again, interesting as a metaphor for all sorts of things from climate change to world war to whatever you want to name. Like, I think that's a fascinating uh, idea, but it has gotten away a little bit from this idea of what does it mean to be a good ruler that drives the books. And I think that the show just doesn't have space for that anymore. And as somebody who has read the five books that exist and, and hopes to read the other two, I, I think that that is kind of an interesting conundrum that George R. R. Martin finds himself in, is that he wants to keep drilling down into these questions, but at a certain point you need to start moving toward an ending. And the TV show decided, oh, we're going to start moving toward an ending. And I think that he just hasn't been able to find that momentum. Are, are, are you concerned... Um with that with only five episodes remaining, there might be a temptation to rush through certain stories to get a conclusion or leave some questions unanswered. I mean, suppose we look at those who saw the world differently, not 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 as much as mortal enemies and jeopardizing everything we hold dear, but but merely those who base different social locations. Are you concerned that they're just trying to do too much too fast too soon? I am very concerned. I don't see a way they get out of this season without shortchanging at least one pretty major storyline. Now, I will say this, the battle against the White Walkers is a really good way to kind of unite everybody on the same page, which means you get a lot of characters in the same location, which means that you can resolve a lot of these conflicts pretty easily. Not Cersei, Real, though. <laughs> yeah, Cersei's often... <laughs> Cersei's often King's Landing. She's going to have to be brought back in, but I think it's sort of inevitable that somehow this war will be brought to her doorstep and that will resolve the, sort of these remaining conflicts. So I think they have an elegant setup to resolve a lot. I just, I don't know if they can resolve everything. And I have to say that the thing about, uh, the thing I, about George R. R. Martin's books is that I am 
pretty sure he's going to do a thing where we learn the White Walkers are more complicated than they seem. In the books, they're called the Others, I should say, just to prove that I know the books. Right. Uh, they, but I think we're going to learn that they have, you know, they're they're more complicated than they seem. They have sort of this different structure and all of that. I don't know if the TV show is going to have time for that. Maybe it will. Like there is there is roughly six hours of this left, even though there are only five episodes. But it's going to be tight. Um, finally, what should we be anticipating next week? Next week, I think we're going to see kind of this. My big theory is that the battle with the White Walkers is going to come earlier than we expect. And I sort of expect it to kick off at the end of next week's episode and then take up a lot of episode three. What am I basing this on? Nothing really, but it does feel like they like to do the unexpected. And that would be pretty unexpected to end that battle somewhere in episode three or four and then have like a couple of episodes of overhang. But... I don't know that for sure. I think we're going to see next week, especially we're going to see some tension with Jamie coming up to Winterfell. I think we're going to see him reunite with Brienne. They haven't been together in forever. I think we're going to see some some fascinating stuff. And I, I, I am more hopeful for next week now that we kind of have the table setting out of the way from the premiere. Well, isn't it inevitable that John and Daenerys have to have tension now? Yeah, I do wonder how they're going to play that. That is one of the things I think that is sucking some of the tension out of the show is those two actors, I think they're fine actors on their own. They don't have a ton of chemistry and the, everything is predicated on them having some sort of spark between them, whether that's a confrontational spark a romantic spark, whatever. They're just kind of both beautiful human beings and they stare at each other moonily and you're supposed to be like, oh, Yes, they love each other, and it's not quite translating, and I think that that's kind of hurting the show. So we'll see what they do with that. Todd Vanderwerf, critic at large at Vox. Thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. It's great to be here. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. You can also subscribe to The Public Morality on iTunes. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh-huh.